Well, good morning, church. Glad you're here. Thanks for worshiping with us. I want to highlight one quick thing before we get into the message, and that's what Grady had just shared. We are going to be sharing in an offering this morning. Uh, quite literally, we'll be passing baskets at the end, towards the end of the service, in the sermon, uh, for our Great Commission Fund. We're joining as Alliance Church. We're joining with other Alliance churches around the world, participating in Great Commission Fund Sunday. Uh, there, we have options of which Sundays. We've chosen this one. We're going to give together, and hopefully you participate in that. And that will be towards the end of the service, so you have time to prepare if you hadn't thought about it. Now, listen, if you're here visiting and you didn't come thinking about an offering, don't think about it now. We're glad to have you. And if you're one of our regular tenders and you didn't think about it, so think about it now. Um, participate now. But the other thing I would say is this. We are going to pass the offering baskets, but we've got a lot of folks that give online, give it weekly, give monthly, automatically. They, they set it up already. So even as we're passing baskets, I understand and we get the fact that not everyone's going to give in a basket as such because we give multiple ways. But I'm hoping that you'll participate. One of the goals we have is that we would have 10% of all the income, everything that comes into the church, at least 10% will go back out to specifically our Great Commission Fund. You need to know every single week that you give, a portion of every dollar that comes, we send back out to our missions organization and, send, and sending the gospel to the world. I love the video you just saw, the different languages. That's just a small number of the languages that are spoken in, in in the course of this weekend in Alliance churches around the world, just a small number of all the languages of all the people who will be in eternity one day worshiping together. And we get to be a part of that. So we'll share in that in a couple of minutes and I'll give you an ample, ample lead time. This morning, uh, we're going to continue on our series about the church. We're talking about the church. And one of the reasons we're talking about it is because when I say the word church to people, say the word church to you, many of us have different thought process that begins to happen. When I say, what do you think of when you think of the word church? You'll think of many different things. And regardless of your background, regardless if this is the first time in church, regardless if you've grown up in church your whole life, regardless of, of your answer to the question, what do you think of when you think of the word church, I guarantee what you think of looks differently today than it did in the first century church, or just you know, days after that Jesus Christ uh, came back from the dead. That first century church, the beginning of the church, looks radically different. And that's our challenge, right? As a church, that's our challenge, to view the church the way that the church first began. It wasn't about a building. It wasn't about a, uh, uh, an institution. It wasn't about a hierarchy. It wasn't about who's in charge. It was a simple movement of a group of people. And we learned some things, and we'll kind of do a little refresher as we start. We learned that the church began with about a group of 100, between 100 and 125 people started the church. Um, what launched the church, what launched these 125 people, what launched them to begin the church, and what launched them to start it with, with fire in their bellies, if you will, is all about a person and a story. The person, Jesus Christ, and the story, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, please hear this. The story of the church, the growth of the church, the momentum of the church, the power of the church has nothing to do. It was not based upon the teachings of Jesus. It is not based upon the activities of Jesus. It is not based upon the pleasant personality of Jesus. It is not based on the kindness of Jesus. It's based on the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone, Jesus alone conquered death. That's what the church is based on. It's based on the fact that Jesus came, proclaimed that he was the Messiah, would live, would die, and come back to life again. You've heard me say this through the years. Someone comes along and is dead for four or five days and comes back to life. Man, follow them. 
I mean, it doesn't get any better than that. So the church is not a, a movement started by teachings of someone or the philosophy of someone. It's a movement that began because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the church began about 60 days after the Easter story. About 60 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the first day the church began. 100 to 125 people had the Holy Spirit come into their lives and then started preaching the story of Jesus. As a result of that, day one, over 3,000 people joined the church. Man, that would put us in a tailspin today, right? 3,000 people at one. Where are we going to seat them? What if they have children? Who's taking care of the babies? I mean, we would have so many problems if that happened today. 3,000 all one shot. That's what it tells us. That was day one. Day two, day three, hundreds and thousands more continue to say yes to Jesus Christ. And immediately, if you know anything about church history, immediately persecution begins. I mean, right out of the chute, persecution begins. We talked about this last week. The next day, Peter and John are arrested for preaching about Jesus Christ. What they're told is this. What they're told is stop. Stop preaching about Jesus. Stop teaching the story or else. We talked about this last week. They are released. They're in jail. They're released They go back to their group. They tell them what happened. Immediately, the group begins to pray. Uh, They're told to stop or else the group prays. What do they pray? They pray for boldness. They don't pray for safety. They don't pray for protection. They don't pray for good hiding places. They pray immediately for boldness. Then what do they do? They go right back and start preaching again. They pray for boldness, and then they act with boldness. They go out there, and they're preaching. Now we come and pick up the storyline for today. We'll get there momentarily, but let's kind of begin to jump into it now. Now, before I do that, let me give you some observations. What I'm going to say could offend you. And my next couple of statements could offend you. If you're offended, don't be offended for long because I'm, I'm preaching to myself as well. Also, if you're offended, a lot of these thoughts are coming from Andy Stanley. And so if you're really offended, blame him, not me, and you'll be fine. So here's the thought process. He makes an observation, which is a really good one, and that is this. We live today, we live here in the United States, we live in one of the safest, most protected countries in the world. Make sure you hear this. We live in the safest, one of the safest, most protected countries in the world. You can make the argument, say, hey, have you read about the shootings? Are you not seeing the crime? All those things, I would say, go look at the world. Put what we deal with here and put it against the world. We live in one of the safest and most protected places in the world. And yet, we are some of the most scared and worried people in the world. People with great anxiety. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, We talk about, you know, safety on the road. We have more seatbelts, more helmets, more insurance, more doctors, more lawyers. And with all of those things boldness gets pushed out of the picture and we settle in for safe. Boldness gets pushed out and we just settle in because we just want to be safe. Diane and I through the years have had the privilege of traveling into a number of different countries and spending time and seeing the lives of other Christians outside of the United States. And I would give you some perspectives. With some of these Christians, if they, were, if they were to hear us say, well, we're going on vacation and we prayed that safe travels while we go on vacation, many of these Christians would chuckle. Now, they're, they're, they're kind enough to not laugh in our faces, but many of them would kind of chuckle. They would hear us say, oh, we pray, Lord, keep us safe as we travel on vacation. And they would sit there and kind of laugh and giggle saying, safe on vacation. Click it or ticket. What does that mean? They're praying for safety as they travel. Have they ever been on our roads? Uh, We've been in the Pacific Rim. 
We walk, we go in, in multiple cities, whether it be Sang, uh, Singapore, uh, Malaysia, Penang, uh, Kuala Lumpur, pick a place. You walk in, you drive in, and there's painted lines on the roads. So there's painted lines, and there's like three lines or four lines of traffic. So four painted lanes of traffic. And instead of four lines of traffic, there's eight. So you have lines for, you know, lines for three, and there's six or seven. Everywhere you go, jam-packed. And you, I, if you're one of, uh, one of the Christians there, you hear us praying for safety as travels, they would go, really? I mean, you guys have more safety issues, more things in place. You have more helmets, more seatbelts, all of those things than you could possibly imagine. Now, one of the things I think is interesting, when we were in Malaysia, um, I, I'm watching the traffic, and I'm, and I'm saying, do you people have, with, with our guests, I said, do you people have traffic laws? Because if you do, I can't see them. I mean, how does it work that you've got painted lines and there's not one car abiding by these lines and the police are everywhere and nobody seems to care? If you have traffic laws, does it matter? And how does it work? I just, I still laugh when they explain it to me. They say, just so you know how it works is that the lines are there as guidelines. Whether you follow or not really isn't the issue. I kind of like that, I got to tell you right now. Um, I drive that way anyway, but I kind of like that you can actually do it that way. But then he said this, and here's how it goes. Uh, basically, the biggest wins. The rule of thumb is biggest wins. Like, what does that mean? It means that the biggest vehicle has right away always. Well, what's the smallest? If, if, if a big truck is the biggest, what's the smallest? Pedestrian. Pedestrians know that if you get hit, it's your fault. So you stay out of the way. And then it works its way up. Pedestrian, pedestrian on a bicycle, bicycle to scooter, scooter to motorcycle, motorcycle to small car. I mean, it just goes like this and everyone knows bigger wins. I have to tell you, I like the system. It works really, really well. You come up and you're in a little car and there's a big truck. You go, truck wins. And you let it go. We actually saw somebody get hit on a bicycle. Not, not, not injured, but you know, bumped. And the panic on their face, and the panic was not because they were hurt. The panic was because they violated the rule. You know, the car wins. And so I'm thinking, what a great system. We're praying for safety as travels, and I could see those Christians saying, really? Do you know our highway system? While we were there in Malaysia, we were there for 10 days, and those 10 days, seven of us, seven of us operated out of a Mini, Mini Cooper, the original Mini Cooper, two-door, tiny, small, seven of us in that wherever we went. No seatbelts, just packed in. I mean, we look like a clown car everywhere that we went. And here we go, pray for safe travels. And I think they would go, really? And the other thing they would think, they would say is, you're praying for safe travels on vacation. Vacation. What's that like? What does that mean? Most Christians in the world, other than us, don't even know what vacation would look like. Who could afford take off a week's work to go spend thousands of dollars to go do something. So, I mean, so that's the picture I want you to get, that they would look at us and kind of go, you guys don't even understand what safety means. And there's another prayer that we like to pray quite often, and the prayer is something like this, Lord, oh, bless us. May the Lord bless us and keep us. We pray for blessing. Now, we may not say that out loud, but let's be honest. We pray that God would bless us and bless our kids and family. Um, and I would, I, I'm guessing that for many Christians around the world hearing us, they would say, you're praying for God to bless you. And I think quietly they might say under their breath, really? You mean you don't have enough already? Comparing us to the rest of the world, I think they might be going, really? 
I think some of them might say, do you guys realize that you have more money in your cup holder or in your ashtray than I'm going to make this week? Oh, Lord, bless us. And you got more money in your cup holder. On top of that, you say, oh, Lord, bless us. And we're kind of going, really? You need more blessing? The house that most, not all of us, I please get, I, I understand that. But the house that many of us live in, in any other part of the world, would house five or six families in one house. On top of that, they would say, have you looked at your refrigerator? Uh, years ago, years ago, one of my guides from Israel was here at a speaking tour and had him stop by, and he was co- co- commenting, laughing. He'd been around the world, so he travels a lot. So, but he was just giving me a hard time. He said, you know, you can put three of my refrigerators inside yours. And that's the norm out there. On top of that, uh, most of us have a two-car garage and three cars. And two cars are in the driveway because we can only fit one in our garage. And so the picture I want to give to you is that the view from the rest of the world would look at us and go, really, you're going to pray for safe travels and for blessing. How anemic. Now, let me tell you one of the problems. I just said, we pray for blessing. And I want to make sure that you hear this. Uh, Make sure you get this message right. Don't ever, ever feel guilty for being blessed. The things I just listed and the things that you have and that God's provided for you, don't ever feel guilty for being blessed. I mean that so sincerely. But I would say, always feel responsible. See, the issue isn't the abundance of blessing. The issue is what we do with it. So don't ever feel guilty for being blessed, but certainly feel responsible. We should always be responsible. Now, what I hope for today, I hope you'll see today, is that we're able to pick back up on this idea of boldness and that we'll regain some boldness in the church. Because a lot of us, quite honestly, are afraid. And quite honestly, we have nothing to be afraid of, but we operate in a spirit of fear. So now let's begin to move into our story this week, coming off of last week. So last week, we learned the story, Peter and John begin to preach. Holy Spirit comes, church is launched. They're out preaching. Peter and John are arrested. They're arrested. Their healings are taking place, signs and wonders, all of these things. People are coming from all over to hear the message and hear the story of, of Jesus. And what's happening in the story right now is that it's beginning momentum. You know, they're, they're arrested, they're released, they're back out there preaching. And people are coming from all over. In fact, they're bringing family members, they're bringing the sick, they're bringing the disease, they're bringing the lame because healings are taking place, signs and wonders are taking place. And the bottom line is in the city of Jerusalem, the buzz right now is all about one person. Who's the person? Jesus. The entire city is in a buzz about this person of Jesus Christ. Now to our text, Acts chapter 5 verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people all about this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts as they had been told and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin and the full assembly of the elders of Israel and sent them to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers didn't find them there. So they went back and reported, we have found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest were at a loss. 
wondering, you know, what this might lead to, what's going to happen next. And then someone came and said, look, the men that you put in jail, they're standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. So that brings us to our text today. There's a buzz happening in Jerusalem, and the buzz is all about Jesus. Now, don't forget, if we look at the numbers of people coming to Christ, we believe that roughly 10 to 20% of the entire population of Jerusalem have become followers of Jesus. That's significant. So everyone's talking about Jesus, and the text tells us the religious leaders are jealous. They're jealous of all that's happening and taking place. So they send for the temple guards. They send the temple guards to go arrest the disciples. Now, no, this is not just arresting Peter and John. That's what they did the first time. But now they're going, the text says they arrest all of the disciples. So at least 11 of them and maybe others, but at least 11. So they arrest the disciples. They decide to put them in jail overnight intentionally. Kind of the thought there is they put them a night in the old slammer. Uh, that'll help them. A little night in jail will scare the Jesus right out of them. That's the thought process, so that's what they do. But during the night, God shows up. God sends an angel, unlocks the doors, releases them, and says, go on your way and keep preaching. Next morning, the leaders get up, assemble everyone, send the guards, go get the disciples and bring them to us. The guards go. They find the doors all locked. They found the, guard, the, the, the soldiers that were stationed there are still stationed there, and they can't figure out how this could happen how they could get away, where did they go, and what do we do next? And I would imagine the thought process would be, now what do we do? Where do we find them? Because quite honestly, if you think about it, it makes perfectly good sense. If you were unjustly arrested and God sets you free, for many of us, what we're going to do is figure out how not to get arrested again. I mean, their thought process would be, well, now what are we going to do and how are we going to find these guys? Because any, com- any person with common sense, if they're going to get out of jail, is going to go into hiding or they're going to flee. So they could be thinking, how are we going to get these guys now? I mean, that just makes sense. Well, while they're wondering how this happened, while they're wondering how are we going to catch them, how are we going to find them, someone walks in and says, hey, the guys you're looking for, they're preaching in temple courts. I mean, they're not hiding. They're right back at the exact same place. So the guards go back again to arrest them. And when they get there, there are so many people, they're afraid to arrest them because they're afraid the people will turn on them and stone them. And apparently there's far more people than there are soldiers. So the the text tells us that they went with them peacefully, no force. So you got to see this in color. So you're the captain of the guard and you go with your little platoon of, of soldiers to go arrest them. You get there and you're talking amongst yourselves and you're thinking, look at this crowd. We arrest these guys. They're going to kill us. What are we going to do? Captain of the guard says, let's just go ask them to come with us. Yeah, great idea. So catch this picture. So they walk up, maybe talk to Peter and say, listen, we're here to arrest you, but there's more of you than us. So would you come with us? And I picture Peter going, yeah, sure. You know, yeah, let me, let me finish my sermon first. And I see the guard going, oh, yeah, absolutely, sure. I'll finish up, yeah. No, and by the way, good sermon. I like it. We're going to be right over here. We'll just take all the time you need. And when you get done, just let us know. I mean, that's the picture. They go without force, which means they had to go and ask them. And they said, yes. So imagine this. So imagine Peter, John, the disciples are wailing away, preaching the story. And off to the sides, a battalion of soldiers sitting there going, uh-huh, uh-huh. And when they get done, they go, are you all finished? Come on, we're going to take in now. I mean, that's what that means. So they take them, Uh, take them before the religious leaders. Story continues, verse 27. 
So the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. Now, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. First thing to notice, they won't even say the name of Jesus. Just know that we told you not to talk in this name. And yet you continue to talk in this name. Uh, you know, let's be honest. Talking about Jesus makes people uncomfortable. Even today it does. You can talk about God. People are okay. You can talk about higher power. People are okay. Talk about spiritual things. People are okay. Start mentioning about Jesus. They get a little uncomfortable. And that's the case here. Don't even mention this guy's name. And then on top of that, it says, and, and not only talking about Jesus, but you're, you're just bent on making us look guilty for having killed him. Now, don't forget, this is just about eight weeks after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. About eight weeks, so it's pretty rare. Pretty, I mean, pretty, pretty, uh, pretty raw still. And the truth of it is, they were guilty. I mean, they were guilty of this, and it's kind of like, well, we really don't want you making us look like we're guilty. But you are guilty, but we don't want to look guilty. Because all these people are starting to follow Jesus may not be good for us. So you're really bent on making us look guilty here. So they say to the disciples, we told you to stop and stop making us look like the guilty ones. Here's the response in verse 29. So Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit who God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Now, the first thing I gotta tell you, I like about, I love about this, I love Peter's response. They just get done saying, listen, we're kind of bothered by the fact that you keep saying this is our fault. What do they do? He preaches the same story of Jesus and says, by the way, whom you crucified. Say it right again. Uh, by the way, it is you. So I kind of like that. He's right back at him. Talk about boldness. And so now they're getting angry. Um, the bottom line, he goes, you know, you did this. But the really key verse is in verse 32 where it says this. We were our witnesses of all these things. He goes, he tells the story of Jesus, whom you crucify. And by the way, we are witnesses. It's actually a legal term he uses. He uses a legal term that you could take to court. Basically, it says, I've been deposed. I've been sworn in. Uh, we know this to be true. This is not hearsay. This is not fantasy. This is not make-believe. This is not something we heard from a third party. We have seen it for ourselves. The leaders are furious. Immediately, they want them put to death. They didn't like to follow me before. They put Jesus to death. That didn't work. So now we'll put the disciples to death. Now, here's the deal. If you ever wondered how it is that religious leaders could actually put someone to death, you ever have that question? You're looking at, you know, how, do, how do the church elders have someone murdered? I mean, have them put to death. Quick background, and you'll get this real quickly. Don't forget, all of Israel's under the Roman rule. And the one thing about Rome, it's interesting. I mean, they were, they were horrible people, but they had some civility. The bottom line is they wanted the taxes of Rome. They, want, they liked the big idea of the Roman Empire, but they really don't want to have to run the affairs of everyday life. That's too much work. So they conquer an area, have whole battalions of soldiers there that say, listen, you, you cause problems, we'll kill you. But if you don't, just carry on with your life. We're going to collect our taxes, but carry on. And in the Israeli culture, in the Jewish culture there, the key piece would be the Jewish leaders. 
So bottom line is they go in with this thought process. If everything's at peace, we're good. Not at peace, we don't like it. Chief priest, Sanhedrin, you're the guys that had to sway over all the people. So here's the deal. You keep things calm. We'll give you what you want. Everything will be good. So they give to them soldiers. So the bottom line is the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, they have soldiers at their disposal. You want to kill somebody? Kill them. What do we care? You keep things in control because if you're in control, we're in control. They want Jesus dead. That didn't work. Now they want the disciples dead. And at that point, a guy named Gamaliel speaks up. So back to our story, verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all of the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do with these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied around him. He was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all of his followers were scattered. Pause there for a quick moment. Let me explain exactly what he's doing and why he said what he said, and it'll make perfectly good sense. He says, first of all, guys, you remember the guy named Theodos when he came? Now, we don't have any other history about Theodos other than this piece of the story, but they all knew. They go, yeah, we remember him. He came, he, had, he revolted against something. Foreign followers, Rome came in, killed him, and just dispersed them, which basically means probably killed their families, shut this thing right down. He said, remember that? And they go, yeah, we remember. And then another guy comes, and his name was Judas the Galilean. Now, Judas the Galilean, we actually do know about him, so here's the story of that. So uh, the governor of Syria decides to do a census. And in fact, they reference the census. The governor of Syria decides to do a census. You do a census for one key reason, but I will say two. Two reasons. The first reason is you want to find out who's all living under the, the, the roofs of the people in your area. Who's all living in my region? And the reason you want to know that is because you want to set a new tax rate. You want to get the most taxes you can, but you don't know how to tax unless you know how many people are there. So they do a census. He says, I'm going to do a census. Judas the Galilean says, hey, you know, Tea Party candidate, you're not taxing us. You're not going to do a, you're not going to do a census. We are against it. Who's with me? And thousands go with him. Thousands say, yep, we're with you. So immediately Rome comes in and Rome says, I don't think so. And they kill Judas the Galilean. Now, side note for you. Judas the Galilean and all of his followers that were against the taxation and the census, they were all called zealots. And a side note for you, if you want to know this, one of the disciples of Jesus was one of these zealots. In fact, his, tithe, his name we see pop up is Simon the Zealot. We don't know much more about him, but the followers of Judas the Galilean were called zealots. So here's Simon the Zealot. Once again, Rome says, nope, I'm not going to have anything a part of this, and kills Judas the Galilean and crushes the movement. So what Gamaliel is saying is this. Listen, guys, do you remember these two revolts, these two uprisings? And they would all say, yeah. So when those two things happened, just so you guys know, you handled this really well. We, did, did, we handled this great. You know what we did? We did absolutely nothing. That's the right thing. Keep your head down and shut up. Because now, listen, you got to get this. So these religious leaders, they would love these revolts because don't forget, they, they want to be out from underneath Rome. So they would love nothing better than to have a revolt big enough that would take Rome out of the picture. 
But if you say that and you support the movement, guess what Rome does to you? Crushes them. So you can't say, let's have this revolt, and you can't say, let's not have the revolt because then the people are against you. So he says, listen, you guys did really good by just keeping quiet and let Rome take care of it. And then he puts into this mix, he says, listen, the bottom line is this, Rome will take care of everything. We stayed out, and the scale of these other uprisings were small, but this one's huge, thousands of people. So the uprising's big, so just keep quiet, and let's let Rome solve the problem for us. Verse 38, therefore, he said, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting God. He says, listen, guys, keep your heads. This is just another uprising. And if it's just another uprising, Rome will take care of it. So Rome won't let it succeed. But then he says something profound with profound implications. He says, if this is just a human deal, Rome will take care of it. And then he says this, but if this is a God deal, you don't want to be in this fight. Because if God is doing this, you don't want to fight God because God wins his fights. Actually profound. Let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. Don't shake your head. Even though I already know the answer is yes. Have you ever been in a fight with God? Yes. I mean, you have those things where you say, you know, uh, God wanted me to do this. God wanted me to give this money. God wanted me to tithe. God wanted me to go forgive. Well, God wanted me to serve. I know God wants me to do that, but I said no. If you ever find yourself feeling as if you have been in a fight with God and you won, then I want you to know that you were not in a fight with God. If you ever have the feeling that you were in a fight with God and you won, you are not in a fight with God. Because I'm telling you right now, God doesn't lose. If you feel like you were in a fight with God and you somehow won, it means God wasn't fighting. Because God doesn't lose. So if you have this attitude that says something like the fact, you know, God wanted me to do this and I've said no, so I've won. You need to know you have lost. And you don't even know it. You see, God never loses. We lose, and we have a lot to lose. The religious leaders, they begin to understand it, and they agree. It makes sense to them. Verse 40, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, and they had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. The word here is pretty important, and this is the word flogged. Flogging was brutal. We've talked about it before, but the truth of it is most people in, in the world, most people in America didn't understand flogging until you watched the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And if you watched that movie, you saw the brutality of a flogging. A flogging was absolutely brutal. In fact, for many people, they died as a result of the flogging. In that time, in that, time, in that culture, that day and age, you have a massive wound like that, chances are good you're going to bleed out or you're going to get infected and die. Many of them died. And don't forget what a flogging was. It was a stick wrapped with leather strands, and on the end of the strands were pieces of stone, pieces of iron like nails, or pieces of pottery that were tied in. And the intent of the flogging, every time they would strike you, and they would strike the stomach, they would strike the back and they would strike the buttocks. And every single time the intent was to dig in and rip off flesh. 
And they would keep doing it and they would keep shredding the flesh and get down into deep tissue injuries. That's what a flogging was. So think of this, if you will. I mean, just beaten. And here they are for several hours. The, at least the 11, maybe more, but the 11 disciples stand in line watching as their friends are brutally beaten and their bodies made to look like raw meat. And on top of all of that, they'd be scarred for life. If they live, scarred for life. The kind of scarring that would happen, they, would, they, they tell us, would look like a burn victim. Because when they get done with the flogging, there's no skin left in the area where they've been beaten. So there's nothing to regenerate. So it has to close in, if you will. And the scars would look like burn victims. Now, here's my question. First, how do you respond to a moment like this? How do you personally respond? Now, here's how some of us go. Some of us think like this. Well, for the cause of Jesus, because we're in church, so we know how we should, should respond. We say, you know what? For the cause of Jesus, I would gladly take the beating. Gladly? Eh. Maybe not, but you know, let's just say I would take the beating. But let me put it in perspective for you. Don't forget, they're standing in line watching. So how do you respond in this moment? How do you deal with it when you're standing in line and they take your spouse first? And they beat your spouse. How are you dealing with this when you're standing in line and they take your 9 and 10-year-old daughter or son first? They take your kids first and beat them. They take a 5-year-old, beat them. They take your mother and they take your father and they have you watch as they flog them. So again, I say to you, um, how do you respond? Let's be real honest here. For some of us, this would have been the end of the gospel message because for many of us, we would have recanted on the spot and said, yep, I'm out. That's the truth. This is a very ugly picture and none of us want to ever have this experience. And sadly for some of us, if this were to happen, we would recant in a heartbeat. I'll tell you, there's three things that expose the hearts of Christians. There are three things that happen in our lives that expose the church. One is persecution. The church always gets thinner under persecution, at least for a time, because those who are on the surface, they bolt. So persecution always reveals the hearts of Christians in the church. Also, abundance reveals the hearts of people when they have all of these things. They have all of these resources. Uh, that tends to occupy the heart. And then also I would say convenience. When I kind of settled into what I'm comfortable with, it also reveals the heart. Interesting thing, I've been reading an article. Uh, I read some time ago an article about COVID. So COVID comes. And what's interesting about this, in the timing of the world, COVID couldn't have come at a better time for the church in one sense. Because thanks to technology, when COVID came, and all of a sudden, in about a two-week period of time, uh, two-week to four-week, two-week period of time, the whole world shut down. And yet, the church world was all ready to go online. We were all ready to go via video. I mean, thanks to um, smartphones, any church can go online. You set your phone like that, you put up FaceTime, and you can be preaching away, and anybody can tap in and want to, want to watch the message who can. Churches were all ready to go. In our case, you know, we had a service one Sunday. We were shut down by the next, but we had a church service that next Sunday. We are up and, up and running with quality, quality video. So in one sense, no better timing for the church. But I read this article that said this, interesting thing. The ushering in of everybody streaming has perhaps ushered in a new day of church by convenience. 
Because see, now we make it possible that everyone can just kind of watch in, feel like they're part. If you're watching this morning, we are glad to have you watching in. But I have to tell you, it is not the same than being here in person because the Bible says that when the body of Christ is gathered together, the presence of God is there. It's called the incarnational moment in the church, which was why when we just sang in worship, you, ha- you felt this overpowering sense of God's presence. Now, here's the beauty of the way the Holy Spirit works. There's no question during COVID when we had to stream, God showed up. But now we can come back together and for many They won't make that transition because it's too convenient. So we have persecution happens. We have abundance that happens. We have have convenience that happens. And so again, the question is, so how would you respond with this kind of beating, this flogging? Well, how about this? Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin. Here goes rejoicing, really rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Now, they don't say Jesus either but they don't have to because they say for the name. Everyone knows the name. That's their response. I mean, but you kind of go, wait, wait a minute, rejoice? You're left permanently disfigured. You're left scarred for life. I mean, quite honestly, I can't even figure out how they got home afterward unless a bunch of other people came and helped them because they would all be beaten so badly and bleeding so badly. I don't even know how they get home. And on top of that, it says they left there rejoicing. Does that sound like your response? The answer to that is no. It does not sound like my response, just to be honest here. It doesn't sound like any of our responses. I mean, we've lost our boldness for fear of what might happen. And we happen to live in the safest, most protected place in the world. Now, what did they do after they left rejoicing? Our last verse, verse 42. Day after day in the temple courts, from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Day after day, they went back to the temple courts. Now, just make sure you know, it doesn't say day after day, they traveled out of different towns to go find different different temple courts because they wanted to stay ahead of the authorities. Day after day, they went back to the exact same temple courts. And by the way, on their way to the temple and on their way back, they happened to stop at every house they came to and they told the story at every house along the way. All along the way, every single day. Now, friends, just let that drink in for a moment. Just let that soak in. Just drink it in for a moment. Picture this. So they were arrested, they were flogged, and they were beaten. And as soon as they were able to stand, they went right back to the very same places where they would have been arrested. And they didn't miss a beat. Their backs, their stomachs, their back of their legs, their buttocks, pain, scars, misery, every day telling the story of Jesus. Man, what's my excuse? What's yours? Well, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want people feeling, you know, maybe I'm odd or weird. And maybe you are. But that's not an excuse. So let's wrap up. Usher, you can get ready. We're going to share an offering just a minute, Usher, so you can get ready. So I thought of, at the end, I thought of giving you all these stories of people who have lived their lives with boldness. I thought of telling you people about people around the world that have given their lives with boldness. And, you know, and I, I, could, I could get you emotionally kind of hooked in. But no emotional man- manipulation. So in closing, without emotional stories, I just want to tell you what boldness looks like. Boldness is saying something when it's easier to say nothing. Boldness is those moments where you just don't want to say anything, but you need to speak. Boldness is getting involved in someone's life 
in their life situation when it's easier just to walk by and to pretend you don't see. Bold is giving God the first 11% of your weekly paycheck instead of a little tip on the way out. Boldness is helping someone whose need you see, whose need God has put you in a position to meet. Bold is helping others who are in need even when it's going to cost you something to do so. Bold is living your life as if that thing which you've asked God to do, he's already done it for you. And you start living your life, even though it hasn't come yet, but you start living your life confident that he's going to do what you've asked him to do. Bold is being a part of a missions group that says we're going to go to the hardest places in the world where no one else wants to go. That's what we're going to do. Just so you know, bold is not deciding to be obnoxious for God. Bold is not being obnoxious over the Bible or over issues. Bold is not pushing your political views or your political agenda on social media. Bold is not uh, taking the non-Christian world and expecting them to act like Christians. We do that a lot. We want the world who doesn't believe to act like believers. That's not bold. This is where we get kind of messed up here. Um, this idea of what it means to be bold. Years ago, I was talking to our elders. This is like, man, 25, 30 years ago. Talking to a group of our elders about living missionally. One of my elders came back, was so excited to let me know that he was doing that. And what happened was this. He said, listen, I can't, I, I got to tell you what happened. So I've been taking the heart what we've been talking about in our elders meetings about living missionally and all those kind of things. And so I work with a bunch of guys and they all curse and swear they take the Lord's name in vain and it hurts me when they do that. So I got them all together and I said, listen, I'm a Christian. I don't appreciate you taking the Lord's name in vain. If, you, if you're going to curse and swear, you are not welcome in my office. And he put a big sign up tell them they're not welcome in there if they're going to curse and swear or take the Lord's name in vain. And he was so happy because he took a stand. Please know, that is not boldness. That did not cause people to be compelled to Christ. It caused them to be repelled from Christians. That's not what we're talking about here at all. See, here's where we get messed up. We think that being bold is calling out sin in the world. It is not. We think that being bold is taking a stand, which it is not. We take it being bold as I'm going to proclaim the truth. No. Ushers, come forward. We'll take the offering and then I'll finish up and kind of explain. I'll let Jesus actually explain what it means to be bold. Um, as I said, we'll share in our offering. Great commission fund. If you're going to give, don't, whatever you do, please don't take your offering you'd give normally to the church and give it to the great commission fund because we have to operate as well. We do this together. Let me offer a prayer first. Father, thank you that we get to be a part of your church. It's far bigger than we ever dreamed. And to thank, for, thank you for including us. And thank you that we could be a part of a group called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. It means something to me to think that we are a part of a group that has deliberately and purposefully decided that we are going to go to the places in the world where no one else wants to go. We're gonna go to the hard places and we're gonna tell the story of Jesus. Bless every giver as we share together, not just in this offering, but as we give ourselves to you. Bless every person. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we're doing that, let me wrap up. So, in, and no more scriptures, so just listen. I mean, no, no scriptures on the screen. So in Matthew chapter five, Jesus gives two perfect illustrations of what we are to be in the lives of people. 
You know, as soon as I say it, you'll know it. He says this, when you go out in the world, I want you to be two things. I want you to be salt. I want you to be light, right? That's the picture. I want you to go out in the world. I want you to be salt in this world. I want you to be light. Now, we all get that right away. What does salt do? Enhances flavor. We like that. What does light do? Hey, it, you know, it brightens the room. And we like that. Let me ask a couple questions. When is salt not a good thing? Well, first of all, forget my high blood pressure stuff. But when is salt not a good thing? I'll tell you when. When you can see it. If you got food and you can see the salt sitting on the food, that's not a good thing. Why? Because it's going to be too salty. So when is salt not a good thing? When it's too much of it. Not a good thing. When is light not a good thing? Light's not a good thing when you've got a sun who takes a bright flashlight and is determined to shine it in your eyes. And by the way, I got a 30-year-old son who still does that. <laughs> I walk into the room and have a flashlight. Hey, Dad, look at this. Boom. Boom. What do you call that? You call that annoying. That's what you call that. Is that helpful? No. You get it, right? So light is not a good thing when it's being shined in your eyes. So catch this. Too much salt, not good. Too much light, not good. In fact, with too much salt, you spit it out. And with too much light, you get angry and you walk away. And we wonder why so many non-church people have walked away. Because we oversalt. And we shine a light in their eyes. And so then Jesus comes back. So that's, in, that's, uh, that's Jesus giving us some instructions about what that looks like in Matthew. And then in Matthew as well, he takes another picture for us. And the other picture, he says this in Matthew 10. He says, now, this is how to live your life so that it's not too salty and so that it's not too bright. I'm going to give you another picture that says, if you do these two things, your salt and your light work. He says this, so when you go out in the world, I want you to be, here you go, as shrewd as serpents. I want you to be as shrewd as snakes. I want you to be as innocent as doves. What does that mean? Well, a dove. If you ever look at a dove, it sits there and it coos like a morning dove. And most of us would have coffee going, oh, I love the morning doves, Right? as innocent as a dove. No one's offended by a dove. And then he says, and as shrewd as snakes. You've heard me say this before. You know what snakes are really good at? Not getting stepped on. Snakes are really, really good at being invisible and not being seen. He said, listen, when you're using your salt and light, don't be offensive. Stay out of the way and bring enough seasoning to bring flavor. That's the picture. Now notice this final thing as we close. What did they preach? They simply preached Jesus. It says from that point forward, day after day, they never stopped teaching and preaching the good news about Jesus, period. They didn't preach against political figures or political parties. They didn't preach against the government. They didn't preach against uh, companies or, or corporations. They didn't preach against uh, issues that are taking place today. They preached one thing. And it was the story of Jesus in their lives. That simple. Some of us have been Christians so long that we have forgotten what it's like to not know the love of God. Some of us have forgotten what it's like to not know peace. Some of us have been Christians for so long we have forgotten what it was like when we didn't have hope because we now live with hope. But these disciples, they remembered. Final statement. They remembered grace. You know why they would have remembered it? 
because just eight weeks earlier, they completely abandoned Jesus. And when he came back from the dead, the first thing he did is he said, hey, fellas, I'm back. That's past, that's gone. We got a story to tell. They remembered grace. And so they told the story of grace. The church of Jesus Christ would be better served if we would stick to the story of God's grace in our lives. Stand, please, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I love what you are teaching me as I study and prepare and talk about the church. It's so easy to get wrapped up in all the other stuff of church and go back and look at the first century followers. They just told the story of Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for changing my life. Empower this church, empower these people to go boldly and simply retell the story of how you've changed their lives. Dismiss us today in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.